0: Welcome to The Form Guide, inspiring conversations about mental health and well-being. This week we're chatting to Clark Carlyle, former professional footballer, mental health campaigner and keynote speaker. We're talking about racism, football and doing good in the world. Hey, (laughs) a bit of an abrupt stop. Hey, Clark Carlyle, welcome to The Form Guide. How are you doing today?
1: After that big tune, Rob, I am exceptional. I've just got to... <laughs> point and (laughs) a half, eight and a half now, that was wonderful mate, wonderful.
0: It's it's a big tune, it's Fred Wesley and the JB's entitled Damn Right I'm Somebody and I I chose that for this discussion uh, because you know we're all somebody right and um, sometimes uh, society tries to tell us otherwise and we're not going to have it. So welcome everybody on the Zoom webinar, welcome everybody that's tuning into the LinkedIn Live. Clark, I'm delighted to, to have you here, you are a former professional footballer, you're a pundit and commentator, you were chair of the Players Union, the PFA, for four years, and you're a prolific speaker and mental health uh, advocate. And I'll embarrass you uh, for a second. I, I'd go as far to say that I think you are um, possibly one of the best mental health speakers I've ever heard, and I've heard quite a few. Um, so, um, you know, great to have you with us. I've got a little lad here who needs an ice lolly open. So you know, <laughs> we, we, we do it all live. I'm going to have to use my teeth. Hold on. There you go, my man.
1: (laughs) That That is so kind of you, and it's a good job I'm black because I'm blushing here, but you can't (laughs) tell that, you see. (laughs) (laughs) huge
0: benefits <laughs> <laughs> well seriously i mean I've, I've heard you speak a couple of times and, and and you blow me away so um you know it's an honor to uh, to have you uh here with us today so look this is the form guide we're going to get into a, a conversation about you know football racism mental health and anywhere else that it takes us but um first of all that question that i always start with the one i'm uh, renowned for and that question is how are you today Um, I'm a 7 out of 10, as you can see. On the form score, um, as I was saying before, I keep having these sort of up and down energy levels with my long COVID, but today my energy has shot back. I've achieved a lot already and I'm excited to be here. But how about you? What's your score today, Clark?
1: Uh, Quite similar. Um, You know, my, my form has been rather more up and down in this past, I would say six weeks than it has been before that, uh, which is quite incredible given the fact we've been in lockdown for, you know, 16 months. Uh, and My wife and I, because of uh, our, our work and our focus, um, you know, we've just grown. We're, we're, we've grown almost exponentially in this time. Uh, but where I am today, this morning I was a six, I was a seven when I sat down in this chair, and now after that tune and that wonderful introduction, I'm an eight. And I think to highlight that it is one of the greatest um, learnings that I had on my self awareness journey, yeah. because I know that when I, when uh, historically when I was going through depressive episodes, and I would feel three out of ten, I'd feel four out of ten, my mind at that moment in time would think that this is it forever. I am going to feel like this forever, you know, and there's a futility and a hopelessness to it. But this is the thing that I love about the form score and why my wife and I have really embraced it is because it, it, it definitively plots and shows me, you know, evidentially that emotions and states fluctuate You know, nothing is forever, nothing is permanent, you know, all emotions are transient, they come and go, and however you're feeling now, that can change, and that, that offered me an incredible amount of hope on my journey, Rob, you know, because I didn't have that insight into my depressive self.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. And I've got this image that I show in a lot of my talks, which is the the the, the well-being or mental health continuum that goes from struggling through to thriving. Um, you know, and we've got a sort of form score at each each junction in that continuum. But I find this really empowering because, as you say, when I've been a three and a two out of 10 in the early stages of my depression and my journey with um, understanding that I was bipolar, I thought I was always going to feel like that. I thought my mental well-being was fixed. And it isn't fixed, as you've seen. You've been, you know, six, seven, eight already today. And um our, our well being, our mental health, it just sort of oscillates hourly, daily. But that that gives us an empowerment to know that we can influence it, that listening to a great piece of music can give us a boost, that taking a rest can can help us, that making sure we have a holiday can recharge us. So it's it's quite empowering to know that it isn't fixed, particularly when we're struggling, isn't it?
1: Totally, totally. And you've you've hit the nail on the head there for me. Um, You know, for people like ourselves who who have experienced seriously adverse mental health, you know, thankfully, we're not in the the distinct majority. But when when you've experienced um, that severity of adverse mental health, knowing uh, that there can be um, a perception from the outside that that's going to be the rest of your life, ad infinitum it's futile you know uh, uh, and this is what your family's gonna have to bear and live with and it's utter rubbish it's utter rubbish because once you know your definitive diagnosis once you accept the professional support that is there for your diagnosis and then ultimately once you engage on a journey of understanding yourself of understanding how life impacts you specifically and then understanding how you mitigate those impacts and how you can prepare for those, it doesn't have to be as wildly vacillating as it was in the early days when we are just white-knuckling through life. So, you know, even for someone like myself with recurrent complex depressive disorder, um, the last time I was actively suicidal, Rob, was 2017. And I was actively suicidal with the notion that I've got recurrent complex depressive disorder. And all I could see was that word recurrent. And I was like, oh, you know, it's going to keep coming back. No matter what I do, I'm going to have to put my family through this, blah, 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 blah. And it was all that I could see. But that was from a, a point in my journey with my wellness where I hadn't done all of these things, yeah. you know, to to arm myself, to to educate myself and to actually um, proactively uh go into life rather yeah. than you know be being reactive to everything that slaps me about. yeah,
0: yeah,
1: and, yeah. Uh, and now it's it's utterly incredible my, my last um like seriously low episode i would say was about seven months ago and it lasted 12 hours amazing it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And that's because my wife and I have charted my whole journey. We see the signs when they're 10 miles down the road. Yeah. And I will say to her, i say, do you know what? I, I can feel a little bit of mental lockdown here. I can feel like, you know, I, I'm not really present in some of these situations. Yeah. I can feel like the children are annoying me, but not because of what they're doing, but because of how they're interrupting my thoughts. Yeah. You know, so all these different things, and I'm like, okay, something's on its way. So let's have a look at the calendar. What have I got work-wise? Is there anything I can pare down? Is yeah. there, any, you know, is there any time we can take out? Can I make time for a round of golf? Blah 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 blah. Yeah. I'll do all these things, and by the time this this episode comes, I, I'm prepared. I'm yeah. ready. I'm yeah. doing all the good things that I, that I know can lift me up a half a half yeah. point. Yeah. And 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 it passes. Yeah. So with that knowledge with that that action you know I'm empowered in this journey and and I'm not a slave to my depression
0: yeah that's incredible and there's, there's there's a bit there it's the self-awareness bit isn't it it's the self-awareness and the awareness of you know of your wife of Carrie on on your journey and the triggers and the signs and and using that awareness to then mitigate against you know that that low period um and, and i think yeah that's the idea with 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 form score it's about giving everybody that self-awareness because we're quite good at it because we've had to be to deal with a serious challenge whereas if you're a typically six or a seven out of ten all of the time you might not have thought about how to proactively manage your well-being um and the other bit that i think is um is is just interesting is all form is temporary right i mean that that's a good sporting expression that you'll be familiar with but all mental form is temporary as well we might be a two out of ten and but then we can be a Four out of ten the next day, as long as we're doing the self care that you mentioned. What does um what would a perfect ten day look like for you if such a thing uh, existed?
1: Uh, it's funny you should say that actually, because when I when I was in psych hospital twenty seventeen, the consultant psych said uh, he wanted me to you know explicitly identify this scale. So zero out of ten is me being actively suicidal. Ten out of ten, he said, is you've won the lottery. Yeah, and and I said, well, no, I I don't like that. I, I, I don't think that your 10 out of I don't think that my 10 out of 10 should be something as intangible as that, yeah. because my history as an elite athlete and a perfectionist and a high achiever means that I will constantly strive for that 10 out of 10. Mm. And if it's unattainable, then I am setting myself up to be perpetually less than. Yeah. And I don't want that. You know, I've lived a life where the highs are just absolutely, you know, astronomical and the lows equally opposite.
0: Yeah.
1: I need to come into a space where, you know, I I stop ranging from here and I start ranging to here, you know, just just slight shifts from that median. So 10 out of 10 for me is a good weather day. It's a good weather day where we've been paid. We've been paid, so we can go out for a meal as husband and wife, and we can take our children to, you know, to the local amusement park, and and it's not too hot, so that Carrie gets sunburned. It's just perfect, you know, so yeah. that we can all enjoy our day and spend some wonderful family time together. Yeah. And having that as a tangible, achievable ten, I think allows scope for greater range yeah. in these middle numbers. Yeah. You know, because if you 10 is you win the lottery and that's never going to happen, then that kind of forces real life into what maybe eight down. Yeah. And I need a bit more scope than that, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I, I absolutely love it. 10, you know, for me, 10 sh- should be attainable and you should hit it um, with a prevailing wind a few times in your life. Um, but it's also about balance and particularly for us. For me, it's um, it's not about the massive highs or the, the huge wins um, because then I can end up in a manic phase of my challenge. It's about, you know, are my people okay? Have I had a swim in the sea? Um, is, is enough money coming in to do some of the things like go out for a meal or have a nice family holiday? Um, have, I, have I engaged in meaningful activity with people that inspire me in that day? These things we can all achieve and the stars need to align, right? You need to sleep well and you need to have got some exercise in and all that, but it's achievable. And I, I love that idea of the the perfect 10 day being something that we can achieve on a regular basis if the stars all align.
1: Yeah, it, got, it goes beyond that for myself because uh, my, my journey has been one of quite incredible um, self-awareness uh, on an emotional level. Uh, and I think this should resonate with the vast majority of men our age, yeah. um, even if you you've paid mind to this or not, because the way that we were brought up, uh, generationally, it, it was quite an archaic perception of what it was to be a man. You know, shoulders back, strong, silent. You deal with everything. You don't convey any perceived weakness, uh, whether it be physical or emotional. You don't cry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the in the Caribbean household that I was raised up in, actually, you know, my dad was like, well, you don't speak about our business outside this house. Yeah. And if I displayed certain emotions, like if I was crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. Well, you know, if I was angry, I'll show you angry. So the way that I was conditioned growing up meant that there was a whole group of emotions that I either ignored or suppressed. Mm. I, I did not show them yeah. and if there was anything that was going wrong in my life i definitely didn't talk about it because that's not what a man does yeah so that's the way that, that i was conditioned brought up i went into football where that was it, it was compounded. Because in football, especially at the elite level and optimum performance psychologists, football think they're at the head of the game because of these psychologists. Utter Tosh. <laughs> optimum performance states are destructive in everyday life. Yeah. They're necessary for optimum performance. You know, I don't, I, I have no fear. I will win at all costs. You know, anything is possible. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But then when I apply that to my home life, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Again, it puts you on that on that journey of perpetual failure. Um, so I I had to uh, go through a whole process these last five years of understanding the emotions that are actually bubbling in in my stomach. Mm. And, When I I say emotional literacy, people are like, oh, you know, I know what emotions are. Of course we do. You know, everyone knows rote what emotions are out of the textbook. But do you know exactly what that emotion is that's bubbling in your stomach and how it's physiologically manifesting itself? I didn't because I just suppressed them all. So it could have been any one of a number of emotions but whatever it was, I knew it wasn't going to get to the surface. Yeah. So I had to take some time to allow these emotions to surface and then identify that with how I was feeling. Was I getting hot? Did my hair stand up on end? You know, did I feel sickness in my stomach? And and that's what I mean when I talk about emotional literacy. Yeah, it's really
0: interesting, isn't it? And um, I won't be able to quote this, but uh, I heard a podcast with um, Brené Brown, who was interviewing... Uh, a a couple of authors who talked about you know the the actual physical manifestation of the negative emotions that we carry and don't Mm. deal with and there's a couple of things isn't there i grew up in the same way that you don't express emotion my father never really expressed emotion other than anger um and um you you you're sort of taught not to show emotion but then of course, they go somewhere, don't they? And they go deep within you. Um, and then we're not used to just sitting with those emotions and working out what they are. And then to unravel all that on a journey of recovery with psychotherapy and everything else that can do that for you, you've got to then come to terms with what those emotions are, were, and what you're carrying, right?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, and this is where, you know, just looking at, at your uh, audience and your clientele, Rob, this is where I think the conversation has to step on. One, two, maybe three steps further, because like we were alluding to earlier, not everyone's been to our, you know, depths of feeling and experience. More people are in this middle tranche. Yep. More people um, are equally, you know, high achieving, elite performance, etc., etc. And And they might think that this isn't for them. Well, th- that couldn't be any further from the truth because it, it's... It's far more nuanced than just sitting with your emotions. You know, that this isn't just about navel gazing, you know, and going to, to see a therapist every now and again to say, oh, I feel like this today, while he's taking notes behind you. You know, that where people need to be at this juncture in life i think for elite performance is marrying the the two concepts of elite performance and looking after yourself as a human being and what that means is compartmentalization is one of the most powerful tools that a human being can possess as long as it's done right mm-hmm. Because we've done 40 years of compartmentalizing with these emotions. Yep. But the reason they're destructive is we haven't gone back to tend to them. Yeah. So understanding that in a professional environment, I know we've come through MIND and a lot of national campaigns, oh, it's good to talk and and bring your whole self to work, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, let's get to the point. These are elite, high-pressure, professional environments. You're going to encounter situations throughout that day where do you know what? It's probably not the right time professionally to bring out that, that emotional response. Mm-hmm. to to react or respond in whatever is the dominant emotion in that moment so you put it to one side but you don't put it to one side to then forget about it and let it stew and ferment and, and blow its top 10 years down the line you put it to one side for a another time in the day or in the week where you go back to these periods and you say right what was going on there yeah what was this and 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 you know, I'm gonna skip to the end but bring it in here so we can come full circle. You one of the things that you were gonna ask me is about one of the a nugget that I would share with people. Yeah. And, And this is it, this is the nugget. You know, this is how I can give myself some objectivity on my emotions throughout the day, which is so hard, isn't it? Yeah to be objecting on your own emotions, your own um emotional regulator. When I have an emotional reaction to something, I ask myself, is that emotion appropriate? So I drop a, I drop a cup of tea, and I'm, you know, I'm, oh, I'm absolutely, I'm furious. Well, actually, angry, to be angry in that, that situation, that probably is appropriate. Yeah. The second question is, is the level of that emotion proportionate? Now, if I drop this cup of tea and I'm blowing my top, that's probably not proportionate to the event that just happened. So I will register with myself. okay, there might be something going on a bit more than me just dropping that cup of tea in that moment in time. Put it in my journal and I reflect on that at the end of the day my reflection time is 10 p.m every day so taking it into that professional environment you know when people feel these emotions that they don't want to display at that given time ask yourself the question is it appropriate is it proportionate if either of those answers are no stick it there on your to-do list in your reflection time come back to it analyze it and um, for me, uh, what, what it often is representative of, and this again is, you know, like a bit of psycho babble, but there are a lot of my responses on a daily basis that are actually child Clark yeah. responding in this adult situation. Yeah. And, and, you know, child Clark needed to respond that way for yeah. survival or to get through that situation or whatever. And that's the immediate reaction from me.
0: Yeah.
1: But adult Clark doesn't need those coping strategies anymore. Yeah. Adult Clark doesn't need, you know, that those reactions uh, 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 and uh doesn't need to feel that vulnerability that young Clark felt. Yeah. Uh, and one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that I am now the adult in the room. Do you know
0: how uh, old young Clark is in that scenario? Uh yeah, I do, he's seven. Okay. So he's young seven. Rob young Rob is four. He's a nightmare. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's an absolute nightmare very very kind of tantrum-y responding you know like a toddler um but I, i'm the same i i'm often in child mode when i should be in, in in adult mode i i love that as well that just analyzing um you know in a reflective period was that appropriate and was that proportionate i think that's a really nice way of giving yourself a bit of a benchmark to um, a yardstick to analyze how you're feeling against um i'm going to come back to this because i think there's a balance there isn't there in in the workplace that we we do need to be able to process emotions and and retain professionalism but in terms of who we are our identity um and 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 bringing ourselves to work because i can tell you that since i've been open about my own challenges then the power of those challenges and the magnitude of those challenges is diminished because i can be open now being open all the time is not the right thing to do but, you know, having that opportunity to be ourselves, whatever ourselves are, whoever ourselves are, is important. So I think let, let, let's come back to that. I want to have a little bit of fun with you first, though. Um, this is this is something I haven't asked you to uh, prepare for. So this is the quick idea. And um, just the first thing that comes to mind. OK, you ready? Well, oh, is it like mallet's mallet? Yeah, yeah like <laughs> oh, just just without the mallet. Um, so if mental health were an animal clerk, what, what sort of animal would it be?
1: Oh, my first response is, is the black dog, but that's only because I've been conditioned to associate it with the black dog. Um, I, I, if mental health were an animal, oh no, but it's a shadow. It, it's, a, it's an ominous shadow, is what it is. Um, because when you turn the light on that shadow, it disappears.
0: Yeah, interesting yeah so a shadow animal I like it um yeah that's cool Uh, and you know the black dog is there and that black dog can be a sort of you know cuddly cuddly dog in the morning right as well um not mine I'm trying
1: to
0: I'm trying to put an optimistic spin on it but I hear you I hear you um if mental for a color Clark what color springs to mind purple purple Why purple
1: um I, I love the colour purple it's my favorite colour. Um every every piece of work that we try and do. I wanted our logo to be purple and silver. Kind of like, no. I'm like, oh, I just love purple. Um because I, I think it it marries a, a, a lot of the colours that you would represent for positive emotions. Yeah. So whether it's red and orange and yellow, you you know, those lighter colours are, are generally married mm. together in purple, but just with that hint of blue. Yeah. yeah you know the blue tone is always there yeah it's um you know you're impressing on it all of these other colors as well I, love I like them. it
0: yeah I like it it's also a, a marry of uh, blue blue and red and for us the form score blues are the positive scores and then reds are the two out of ten so it's a mixture of those which is is our mental health for sure um if mental health were a food what, what, what is it for you um oh what Weird question, Rob. It is, isn't it? It gets you thinking, though. Uh,
1: If mental health were a food, it would be uh, a mixed kebab with cheese on. Love it. Because it looks utterly disgusting from afar. (laughs) But the closer you get to it, the more interesting it smells... And it tastes far better than it ever looked from from way back there. Amazing!
0: That is perfect. I love <laughs> the mental the mental health kebab. It's <laughs> uh, so, if mental for a song or a piece of music,
1: uh, um, my favorite song to sing to myself is Three Little Birds." Yeah, um, great great but- piece of music it is wonderful um but my favorite lyric is actually from robbie who says um no regrets because they don't work and uh i like that as a lyric um
0: yeah we can have both yeah we can we can work both in that's brilliant so um mental for a holiday destination where in the world would that be for you clark
1: um in the context of health mine would be greece yeah I just love being in Greece. I, I, I think the temperature is perfect. Um, I love the food, Greek salad and fresh fresh uh, mm. fish. Yeah, it's a bit of me that is.
0: Yeah, like that. And then final one, if mental health were a sound, what sort of sound comes to mind?
1: Mm. I've got alarms ringing. Um, but I don't want it to be as intrusive as that. Um, my mind's got to be alarmed to be honest, yeah. yeah. Because you know, if I think of a sound, then it would be you know, like that air raid siren,
0: yeah,
1: getting progressively louder and louder the lower down, yeah, the, the okay. spectrum that I go,
0: yeah. I can work with that. That's certainly, yeah, that, that, that's good. It's, a, it's an alert, um, so. Picture the scene. I'm going to put this together. You and I, um, we're we're in a Greek island together. You know, our wives are with us. Uh, it's a very nice scene, um, and you know, we've got three little birds playing. Uh, we're feeling very relaxed. We're, we're aware of an alarm sound in the distance, but it's a soft alarm sound, and it's just reminding us the, to you know, keep prioritizing our well-being. You know, to to stay well. We've got the, just the most authentic, fantastic Greek salad that we're all we're all eating. Um, and this, you know, this purple hue of the sea and lighting that just looks you know absolutely fantastic. And we can see the shadows of a dog, but we can't see the dog that's just, you know, kind of kind of way over there. So that's uh, that's the scene that uh, I think is quite quite beautiful and I'd quite like to be there right now if
1: I'm honest, Clark. Hey, that's brilliant. What an excellent little exercise. I suspect I like that.
0: Yeah, I nice. like that. yeah. Uh, one day, I think that's an achievable one. Sometimes I do these and they're totally not achievable. But you know, maybe one day we could be there in Greece, you know, enjoying that salad. So so look, um we're gonna get into it. Um we're gonna talk about football, racism, we're gonna talk about mental health. We've been touching on those already. Um just, just talk us through your journey, Clark, if you don't mind, a little bit with kind of mental ill health through to through to recovery.
1: Oh, cool. uh, Alan's this session? <laughs> We've got about
0: <laughs> half an hour left, so it'll be the it'll be the shorter abridged version. But just give us a, give us a flavour.
1: Uh, the abridged version, um, as we alluded to earlier, you know, quite a traditional upbringing that that kind of moulded my um, identity when I moved into adult life. And then that was further compounded by football. Uh, um, what what compounded it the most we, within football and that upbringing um, was that my self-worth was always based on external validation. you know so in home in the home life it, it was the affirmation of me old man. And then when I went into my work life, um, it, it was that I had to please the manager, I had to please the, the fans, I had to please the, the guy in the press box who was going to tell the world how good or bad I was the next day. Yeah. And then that just kind of morphed into this incredible, all-intrusive beast with social media. Yeah. So you couldn't just go training and then go home and, you know, being the, the, the safety of your, your own sanctuary, you know, people's opinions were coming to you on your seti. you know, or, or when you're with your family and, and all that. So all, all of the, um, any doubt that I had uh, of, of myself, of my abilities and capabilities, uh, I'm, I'm sure many people are familiar with this. I might have 100 positive comments, but I was like Teflon to them. Yeah. One negative comment was like Velcro, boom, stuck yeah. on my forehead. And, and because everything that I'd ever done for my life was all about making people like me, making people love me, yeah. it then became my um, my sole mission to convince that person that I'm good, to to win them over, turn them around. I spent so many hours on social media, you know, justifying my existence or performance and uh, this, that, and the other. And um, so that that's that's kind of the the uh, approach to life that that I was taking. And when there were certain large incidents that happened in my life. I had no wherewithal or coping strategies to, to manage them. First one was in 2001. Um, I'd just been signed by QPR, just made my debut for England under-21s. I uh, had a tackle in a, in a match against Fulham where I ruptured my ACL, LCL, Popliteus, ITB, rotated the fibular head, uh, dislodged the nerve, ripped the hamstring off my right knee. You know, my career was just kicking off then, you know, really just burgeoning. And the surgeon said that I probably need to walk with a stick. So at that point, at 21 years of age, you know, Clark Carlisle and football were inextricably linked. It was the very reason why I had money in my pocket, why I come out of inner city Preston and the council estate, underprivileged life, why girls were interested, playing in front of 20,000 every week, you know, living my dream. And it was gone like that. And and the coping strategy that, that I used was drink. It was recommended by the physio and it was one that I'd utilised from 12 years of age on the local park,
0: Mm -hmm. you know.
1: So I I just got battered for about five weeks solidly because I was uh, housebound. And it was in that haze that I took an overdose. I just thought I was nothing without football. Um, I was taken to hospital, put my stomach, survived. But incredibly, I was discharged by the physio because uh, the club didn't want anyone to find out. And all we did was just pretend that that never happened. Right. So that there, you talk about suppression of emotion. You know, that was that was the an intense trauma in my life, and I just totally ignored it. Uh, that that I know now is the inception of my depression.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but that being said, I genuinely think that no matter what line of work I went into, if there was a significant enough trauma because of the way that I, you know, approach life and, and all of my self-esteem and validation was in others, I, I think I'd probably have gotten there anyway, Rob, where, wherever I was.
0: It's amplified, it's amplified, isn't it, with social media when you're in the public um, gaze? Um, and it's it must be pretty hard to ignore. And as you say, what you're ignoring is the positive comments and you're focusing on the negative ones. And it, it's not even constructive negative um, criticism of and feedback as to how you might be better at the game. It's often hateful and, and horrible things that you're reading, right?
1: Definitely, you know, it undermines any sense of self, any sense of... of not just validity in, in my working persona, but also, um, you know, I think we'll come on to racism later, but a, a lot of your your sense of, of belonging within your own community, you know, your, your right to be there. Uh, and uh, and that was, you know, well, it all contributed to this melting pot. You know, to talk about my mental health along that journey, what, one of the things is, is that my depression started there, but it wasn't diagnosed for another 12 years. You know, and my perception at the time is someone who had depression was someone who was weak and and couldn't handle it, shivering in a corner. That's utter rubbish. You know, I, I achieved, Rob. I achieved incredible things. 500 professional games, Premier League, Wembley, Millennium Stadium. Like you said, chair of the PFA, BBC documentaries I presented, all this stuff, got a degree, went into broadcasting. But I did it all in spite of my depression, I did it all white knuckling through certain days, you know, desperately clinging on to, to my faculties and, and desperately um, <laughs> just clawing onto the edge of sanity. Yep. So much so. And this is where, you know, I, I, I really want to take it to this audience is it, it, it's that duplicity that I felt I was achieving every single day. I was achieving every single Saturday. I was going out and I was representing, you know, not just myself, but my club and then my fellow colleagues and my peers and all of this stuff. And I was doing it well. But when I got home, I just felt like an absolute fraud. Mm. You know, when I was walking through that day and I was doing all these things and I was saying the right things and doing the right things. And I was thinking, my God, you charlatan, you know, someone's going to catch you out very, very soon. Yeah. And it's not true, but, this, you know, this is just what was going on in, in my internal monologue, and, and I had no way to get any objectivity on it because I was never taught to think about my thinking. Yeah. I was never taught to think about my self-talk. I was never taught to share, you know, the, these, these inner machinations. Yeah. So, you know, to to have an adverse mental health uh, issue doesn't mean that you won't achieve You know, it just means that you work harder than others to achieve (laughs) uh, against yourself on a daily basis. The flip side of that being embracing and knowing exactly where you are with regards to your emotional state and your well-being means that you can uh, take ownership of that journey and actually be more effective and more efficient in the things that you do without innovating yourself. Yeah. And that's the point that I've come to now. But that's only after a course of, of five suicide attempts, Rob.
0: Yeah. And what was uh, and, and thank you for sharing that. And I think it's it's important to to give people a message of hope that you, you've got to that place through those attempts, uh, as have I. Um, and and hope is so important as we've discussed on this but what was the catalyst for you to be able to get through that to get to this place that is you know we're all still on a journey right and we're still in a management and recovery process but you're in a good place you're in a better place what was the catalyst for you to be able to get there really good
1: question there were two things that happened uh first of all and um, because of the PFA, i had been able to go into private psychiatric hospital after my most prominent suicide attempt. And um, I went in there 28 days, got fantastic care. But then once I was discharged, I was discharged with a pamphlet because you're no longer paying a bill, you know. So it's kind of like, there you go, off your pop. And, um, and I left those, I left psychiatric hospital, the private facilities, thinking that I had the answer in this pamphlet but without actually, you know, implementing any real changes in my life. Yeah. I would say it was tantamount to me going to the doctors, doctor saying, Clark, you've got diabetes, uh, and me saying, brilliant, thanks. Now I know what's going on. Yeah. And then them saying, no, you, you know, we've got insulin for you. I'm like, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, thanks very much. Going out, still drinking three litres of Coke, still eating two kilograms of dairy milk and wondering why I end up in a glycemic coma, you know. Yeah. I knew the information, I didn't act on it in the appropriate way. Yeah. So in 2017, uh, I went into NHS hospital and uh, this transformed my life. It transformed my life for two reasons. First of all, um, when I was in there, I was in that state of futility where I thought I'd tried everything and I was a lost cause. And when I was in there, they gave me uh, an accurate diagnosis. And with that diagnosis, they said I needed to try CAT, Cognitive Analytical Therapy. I'd never heard of it. And that just gave me a flicker of hope. Something that I'd never heard of before that I could try, you know, that might that might uh, point towards uh, some kind of recovery from this that I was going through. So that... Hearing that there was something that I hadn't tried gave me hope yeah. uh, and averted my eyes from where I was at to where I might be able to get to. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and then uh,
0: I think that's an interesting point. Sorry to jump in there that actually we do need to try different things on these journeys. And, yeah. and you know, what's right for you may not be right for the next person. I've done EMDR at some stage. I've done you know, CBT. I've done psychodynamic therapies. I've done a load of different ones that have been right for me at different times and some of which have not been right for me at all. Um, but it's a—it's not as a precise science, is it? We have to try things.
1: Definitely, yeah. It's, It's—it's as unique to the seven billion individuals we have on this earth. Yeah. The—the uh, the, your wellbeing action plan will not be identical to the next person's, yeah. because it's not just the therapist yeah. you know it's, it's it's there's a whole myriad of things that contribute to what has brought you to here and what you need to do you know in order to advance from here and that's right from our upbringing to our working uh, circumstances to our relationships etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. Uh, and all the different type of therapies you have to try them and also the therapist
0: yeah
1: you know, some people say, oh, I tried, to, I tried CBT, I went to see this one guy. He was terrible, so it don't work. Like, well, no Carrie always says that's like going on a date and saying, "Oh no, it was terrible. That's it. I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm going to be a spinster now. I'm going to be." W, no, you, you go out and try the next person to see yeah. who you connect it's, with. Yeah. Academically, they say sixty percent of your therapy lies in your connection with the therapist. Yeah. You know, so so if you don't get on with that person, try someone else.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. try a different
1: one the
0: connection bit the connection bit is so important um i want i want to i want to turn to kind of racism um you have you've, you've mentioned it and, and obviously um we have seen that in the press um yeah with the response to the euros uh, which w- was a fantastic tournament and then marred by that but also i guess the 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 backlash to people fe- it feels to me like people are not going to tolerate it as 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 much as has been but we'll talk about that but how much did racism play a part in, in in kind of your challenges of mental ill health when you were you know, coming through as a, as a footballer, and when social media was coming in, and those microaggressions that that we've spoken about in the past? Talk talk us through that, Clark.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it wasn't as as uh, large or prevalent an issue in my mind and to me directly until later in my life, right. And that's because I, what I found was when I went into football um, as, a, as an apprentice, it was that time where you, you don't speak unless you are spoken to, yeah. you know, you do anything to conform to what's going on in the situation so that you can elevate yourself, you know, in, in that situation. And then, um, and in in the dressing room, in in the mid nineties, early nineties, you know, a lot of the, the the majority of racism was there in that dressing room, and it was all in the guise of jokes, you know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, standard stereotypical tropes about whether you know whether it's a black person, Asian person, uh, you know, xenophobia with the the Scottish people and stuff like that, and and I went along with all of that, Rob. You know, I laughed at those jokes because when I started at 16 years of age and I went into the first team dressing room to collect kit and the first team coach walks in and he throws a banana at me and he says, oh, and keep your socks on this time. And all 25 men in the first team squad burst out laughing, black and white alike, all of them. I just take it. I just take it because I'm like, oh, OK, this is what happens here. You know, there, there, was, there was no one who stood against it. There was no one who, who who came to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, that wasn't right. It just was. And, and, it, and it was disguised as human. And it was so, um, so you know, it, it was such a, a deep rooted part of that dressing room environment that I was complicit in it. Right up until my I would say probably my mid to late twenties.
0: How did it make you feel? Pardon? How did it make you feel? Hmm.
1: In that moment and in the incidents where I was the butt of the joke, I felt belittled. Hmm. Um I felt I yeah i think belittled it is belittled and slightly ashamed slightly mm. and the way the way that i acted or reacted was to go and show them that i am worth it so rather than me railing against the injustice of what they were saying it almost it affirmed to me that i needed to do more to seek their approval yeah and turn that around
0: which then fuels the external self-validation, uh, the external validation, and and fuels that 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 issue we were talking about before, doesn't it? Exactly. And and when when did you start to see things change?
1: Um, the the change for me came in like I said when I was in my mid to late twenties. I started to work with the PFA, started to uh, work in the local community trusts at my club, and um, became far more aware uh, of wider experiences um uh, with regards to racism and also became more aware of the different forms of racism other than people just being directly abusive yeah. in my face and it was only at this point where you know i retrospectively realized that it's been present for the entirety of my journey yeah. uh, and and it was it, it was present in ways that i had Uh, Felt responsible for. And and this is amazing, you know. uh, Carrie Carrie brought things to my attention that to me had just been the way it is. Uh, And for an example, I will say, I'll go to a a, a hotel in, in Mayfair, walk in, we're in a queue. Three people go through booked in, booked in, booked in. And then I get to the, the reception desk. I'm like, um, yeah, can you pay for your room up front, please, sir? And can we have proof of, of your ID? And, and and I just give it because that's what I've always done. Yeah. But you know, Carrie's like, I beg your pardon. What about what about these three people? What about this, that, and the other? And I'm like, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, let's just get into our room. But the, these are the the Like you said, microaggressions that happen on a daily basis. When I go to a shop and a a woman holds her handbag closer to me, when I meet someone at the House of Lords and I say, "Oh, good good afternoon," you know, "How are you?" Blah blah blah. They say, "Oh, you're actually, you're very articulate, aren't you?" And there's kind of an implicit for a black guy, for a footballer, you know, when when I was I used to do a lot of driving late at night when I was. commentator for itv and i would say over the course of a year maybe seven or eight occasions that i got stopped on the a1 for driving a nice car late at night yeah you know how, how is that right yeah. Yeah. how
0: is that right it's it's not and and i i get pretty wound up about this and and it it you know, those microaggressions are then putting the onus on you as the individual to call them out, and putting a pressure on you that shouldn't exist
1: in the first place. Um, when you when you've lived a life of external validation. It, you don't go to call them out. You go to justify your own being. You go to justify the, you know, your validity in this situation. So that old lady who pulls a handbag closer when we're in the supermarket and she's struggling for a loaf of bread, I'm like, oh, let me get that for you. And it's not just because uh, you know I'm being chivalrous. It's because I'm saying, oh, I'm not like those other ones you know and and that kind of mindset where i was brought up to speak the queen's english to to um you know not not act or speak like the rest of our family in central preston and to aspire to do this and behave in a certain way and effectively to try and be as unblack as possible in order to achieve in life and what that it, it impressed upon me was it was almost a deep felt shame of my own identity. And it's only in in the past 10 years that I've been able to actually voice that. I've just gone really hot by saying it. Because it it should never be that way. And when you're in a society, Rob, that predicates its whole position from being tolerant, oh, yes, we're a tolerant society. Rob, I was born in Preston. I don't want to be tolerated by my fellow Prestonites. You know, I want to be welcome. I want to belong. And this isn't me asking for that utopia of our love across the world. No, it's a basic
0: human right to to be included, right? To be included, to be welcomed, um, but included particularly. Um, Not tolerated, absolutely. And and we're seeing some reaction on the LinkedIn Live on this from from Rachel. Um, And um, if you've got any questions, everyone, um, both in the Zoom and on LinkedIn, drop them in. We'll try and get to one or two. Clearly, Clark, we have seen a, the horrific response and racist response to the the penalty shootout. Mm-hmm. Um we we then saw a, a kind of you know, backlash and outcry against that on you know all sorts of channels from from people not accepting it. And then it's two weeks ago, it's yesterday's news almost, isn't it? Um do you think enough is being done on the anti racism movement? Um and no.
1: <laughs> Very simply, no. Yeah. You know, when when football did that blackout Tuesday for the social media, and, uh, and I, I don't even know if I if I partook of that. Um, but the next day, I put up there. Uh, right. So what now? What now Wednesday? You know, it, it's it's a one day a year campaign for yourselves at the FA. It's a 365 day a year experience as a black person living in a community where where you know you've you've been subject to certain actions and behaviours on a daily basis. It's and um, and then you know I I get that counter thought in my head. It's not for football to cure society's ills. Football is a fantastic platform to highlight certain things that are going on within our communities, but this is a societal issue. So, you know, rather than having a pop at the FA in the Premier League, which I will do, you know, um, because they should be the exemplars in the ED, EDI field. You know, the Premier League, for example, said um, they're looking for 40% female representation on their board, 20% uh, black and minority ethnicity by 2032, right. 10 years. Rob, there's four people on their board. Four. One of them is a woman. So what they're saying to us is that they're going to employ one more person on their board in the next 10 years that will be a black woman and that's going to fill their fulfill their EDI target. It's, it's just abject uh, and laughable. But I think that the FA especially should be exemplars in this field within their organisation and then they can start to dictate externally. But on a societal issue, Priti Patel, um, you know, she's, without casting aspersions, I, I, I believe... Um, I believe she's one of those people who has um, almost sold out uh, in order to fulfil and attain the position that she has. And for her as a a British Asian woman to say that taking the knee was gesture politics after all that she must have faced personally to get to where she is, uh, but then to dismiss the experiences of an entire industry's, um, you know, perspective and opinions and experiences uh, around racial abuse, I think, is horrific. When she's Home Secretary, if she should, if she did her job, a lot of that wouldn't wouldn't be necessary.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and again, uh, there's a lot of love on the chat coming from that statement. I thought Gareth Southgate, in his open letter, um, said um, you know uh, some good stuff around that I think, you know, racists will be on the losing side. Um, the game might still have to be played for a, a bit of time to get to that point. But um, I, yeah, I liked that sentiment. I guess one question I've got, and you, and it's a tough one, right? And I'm not expecting the answer, but for, for those of us that, um, yeah, like myself who um, think racism is shocking and should be eliminated from society, how can we be better allies? What can we do to, to, to help on that mission?
1: Mm. It's again, it's an unfair expectation, uh, and I I only think that we can contribute in part yeah. as individuals in 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 a vast community, and that is to call it out where you yeah. see it, and that. When you say that, when, when I hear people say that and people react to it, they think that it's, it has to be in a huge confrontational, I'm going to you know, report you to the police, take you to court kind of way. I don't think it has to be that. You know, When I went into Northampton Town, um, I used to, <laughs> if there was anything, that because uh, homophobic kind of banter was commonplace, in, uh, in football dressing rooms. And whenever I heard anything, even as simple as, oh, that's so gay, I would shout out, no matter where I was, kick it out. Yeah. Which was the go-to phrase, you know, yeah. it's the organisation in football. And at first, the lads would laugh. You know, they're like, ha, ha, ha. And then, you know, maybe an hour later, a day later, it would be like, oh, you know, absolute, you've bender. Like, Kick it out. Yeah. And they'd be looking at me and I'd be like, no, you know, that's not what we have. That, that's not in our club. That's not in our club. And just with that yeah. one phrase, uh, I would say probably after about two months, the lads started shouting it at each other. Good. And that's when I knew I'd made that bit of difference. You know, because people are hearing um, and responding to those those parts that we find unacceptable w- within our community, as it was then at Northampton Town. But it, but it's not it's not something that we can fix as individuals because. Two prong, classic, classic pincer movement. It's got to be education, and it's got to be the deterrent by way of uh, consistent reporting, independent uh, investigation, and a judicial outcome. Yeah. Only, only when you've got that and that can you make a difference. People like Twitter and Facebook taking down the posts that doesn't do anything. All that does is make it, it makes people's sentiments invisible. Yeah. it doesn't address the thoughts at the at the core of the posts
0: yeah i mean i think you know there's obviously movements of of making people a bit more accountable on social platforms which i'm supportive of but that again doesn't un- address the underlying uh nature of why individuals will feel this way and that's as you say education and consequence um i think both are important there um one one more question really we i can't believe this hour has gone already you know it, it's it's just d- disappeared it's amazing isn't it how time goes um but w- one of the areas where i think that we um in the wellbeing industry and and formscore specifically can can help is if you if you were to look at who is using wellbeing solutions you know popular digital solutions it's typically middle class white and and more often than not female um if you were to look at the, the demographic And there's there's inequity in the uptake of mental health services for those who are struggling as well. What's your perspective on this? Because I think I have an opportunity and and an obligation to try and um, help communities that might be more underserved in terms of uptake of proactively managing well-being. Um, But what's your perspective on that, Clark? Uh,
1: I have two two different perspectives. One within the workplace, where... um, uh, I believe, according to the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, that the majority of workplaces actually aren't compliant when it comes to mental health, education, supervision, and training within the workplace. It's there in the appendices, it's been there since 1974. Yeah. That personal injury at work consists of any disease or impairment to the physical or emotional self. So it's been there, we've taken the physical health to the nth degree. And we've left the, uh, you know, the psychological, emotional health at the bottom. So, I think that uh, organisations, that companies, should have mandatory training for their well-being and mental health, just like they do for the physical health. Yeah. You know, you can't even go on an exercise bike at a gym without having gone through the the requisite uh, introduction, and I believe it should be the same in the workplace. With regards to communities that that um, you know certain parts of the community that don't engage, it's I personally feel it's about visibility and relatability. Yeah, uh, and so it, it's it's the visibility of of of, uh, of the product of the technology. You know, are we showing it in the places where these people are looking? Yep. And then when we're showing it there are we showing it with people who they relate to yeah. you know one of the core fundamentals about mental health and well-being and people engaging with services is that the vast majority of people want to speak to someone who looks sounds or relates to them
0: yeah.
1: so that empathetic reflective person is the gateway for the majority of primary conversations around mental health yeah. so if you do have uh, Mental health first aiders, well-being champions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. do they reflect your workforce? Yeah. Do are they diverse enough to reflect those, you know, the demographics that you're specifically targeting with each initiative? Yeah. And as we take that wider in, into our communities, you know, having a having a group of 14 Asian mental health champions isn't going to work in Carlisle, where my sister is a teacher, yeah. because it doesn't reflect the community. So, you know, the, 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 there has to be a balance to the, the ED&I when it comes to this because it needs to be directly reflective yeah. of the community that you're trying to serve. 100%.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. Wise words, my friend. So, look, I know you're working on some exciting stuff. Um, tell us uh, tell us what you can about it, please. We are, yes.
1: Um, you know, pretty similar to what we've been talking about all day, Um Rob, Carrie and I, we've been doing these corporate talks, you know, where we go into organizations for an hour, we share our experiences, we see their um, EAP uptake explode, et cetera. We see opening of conversations. And we, we think that's that's fantastic, you know, as an introduction to well-being and self-awareness. But especially with the, the people who will be on this call, we believe that we need to go three steps further. It's beyond it's good to talk. Yeah. People need to have the confidence and competence to know who to talk to and when. Yeah. You don't need to tell everybody, but it's imperative that you tell the right somebody. And that's often time where, where, you know, certain support services will end. Well, no, that like we said, these are elite, high achieving people. We need to now harness that knowledge and understanding and implement it on a daily basis so that we can underpin successful work performance in tandem with successful human being endeavors. Yeah. And having that balance and understanding you know, the nuances of compartmentalization, of working self and personal self, et cetera. And, and to do that, we put on a masterclass. Uh, and it's, it's so exciting, Rob. We're going to spend a full day with people, uh, breaking it down section by section, uh, going deep into the the core of these issues. And we know that people who come on there will be energised, they'll be educated, and there will only be a greater version of themselves than when they came on that course.
0: That sounds amazing. So how can people find it? So We'll put a link in the show notes. But what's your what's your website?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's uh, clarkandcarry.com yep. uh, Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, and Carrie, C-A-R-R-I-E, forward slash masterclass. Masterclass. And you can sign up there. Uh, first one is 25th of September of the autumn term, and uh, limited places, actually. They're going really quick, and there's such appetite out there for yeah. this, Rob, and we need to make sure that we're feeding that appetite with the right stuff.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, Clark, thank you so much. That sounds amazing. And I'd encourage my network to take a look at it and we'll, uh, we'll help you promote that for sure. Um, my friend, it's been such an honour to speak with you. Um, and, you know, I can't believe the hour and three minutes has just gone like that. And, um, you know, we could talk a lot more, but I, I love your approach, your philosophy. And thank you for sharing your personal perspectives. It's been an honour to, uh, to hear them.
1: Privilege to share the platform with you, Rob, man, and and uh, a privilege to call call your friend, mate. Thank like you. It
0: likewise my man so thanks everyone on both linkedin and the zoom for for tuning in um and, and giving up your scarce resource your time to join us uh, this is the form guide inspiring conversations about mental health and well-being we're going to take a short break over the summer months because i'm going to practice what i uh summer weeks to practice what i preach and get some well-being downtime but the next up we're going to have harry bliss who is the ceo of champion health clark once more thank you very much everybody thank you so much for tuning in